0: So tonight we're in John six verses one through fourteen, the feeding of the five thousand. So after the account of Jesus giving his defense um, to the Jewish religious leaders, John brings us to this miracle of Jesus. The miracle, this miracle, is the only miracle of Jesus that is recorded in all four gospels. Um, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all serve to complement. Uh, each other, and they give us further insight into the heart of Jesus in this passage, I believe. Jesus uses this miracle as a platform for his sermon, um, his sermon on being the true bread of life that we look at next week. Um, just within these 14 verses, there's a wealth of insight into the character of Jesus and how he interacts with his followers and his heart for the lost. Um, Our narrative opens up with Jesus departing following some events. In verse 1, it says, After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is uh, is the Sea of Tiberias. Now, this event not only followed the account of Jesus' defense, but we learn from the other three Gospels that the disciples had just returned to Jesus from being sent out on a missions trip. Jesus had sent them to do some work. They had been teaching and healing and calling people to repentance. And so um, Mark 6 actually tells us that they had returned to him from this work, and Jesus tells them to come aside to a deserted place with him so that they could rest. So they, de- they depart with him over the Sea of Galilee, and just, as about, just about as um, they're about to retreat with Jesus, we come to verse 2. And it says, then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. So a great multitude. We learn that there's 5,000 men. Um, but if they're married and they have children, we're looking at somewhere between fifteen to 20,000 people coming toward Jesus. Mark 6 tells us that they're coming from the surrounding cities, many to celebrate the Passover. Um, so we know that the disciples, they're looking to retreat with Jesus. Um, they're coming uh, to a deserted place to be with him. Um, and they had just been doing ministry. They think they're done. Right, um, and they think they're, they're going to get to rest, but Jesus has other plans. Um, see, Jesus knew that the crowd would come, and he orchestrated this moment to reveal his heart to the people and to his disciples, as his disciples were never off duty. It's kind of like being a parent, no days off. bummer. <laughs> I don't think they're looking to be serving as they're retreating with Jesus. their mind is has taken a shift here. Um, and we think about that. Um, most opportunities that we have to serve are going to be outside of these walls. We serve in children's ministry or the youth ministry, but most opportunities that we have to serve are going to be in our homes or in our workplaces and our marriages and our friendships. It could be at the park or the grocery store. There are opportunities that sometimes catch us off guard, um, things that we're not looking um, to do, but opportunities that Jesus puts in our path. Um, and we have a responsibility as believers to um, to engage in those opportunities. Um, and we will be blessed and we get to bless those around us. Second Timothy four, two says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. And sometimes it is with long suffering. You know, we don't feel like serving a lot of times in those moments that catch us off guard. We think, oh, someone else will get it. But Jesus puts those opportunities in our path in order to bless us, in order that we would be a blessing to others. So John gives us a small but important commentary on the motive of why the crowd is following Jesus. He says, they followed because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. They were coming for wrong motives, right? They weren't coming, their intentions were not out of a genuine faith for Jesus. They're coming to see the hype. Um, they want to see what everybody's been talking about. People are being healed. They want to be part of that. Um, and I think we give the crowd some grief over this, but this is human nature. Um, this is us. We're attracted to or drawn to what the crowds are drawn to. Um, this is an opportunity for the crowd, for dinner and a show, really, um, in some ways. Their motive for coming to Jesus was the enjoyment of physical blessings, but there was no desire for spiritual growth or a spiritual awakening in their lives. And sometimes we can allow our physical needs to become so prominent in our hearts that we lose sight of the spiritual things that God is wanting to accomplish in us. Coming to God with our needs is not the problem. He wants us to do this, right? He desires for us to do this. But our goal should always be to have him meet those spiritual needs that we have. Jesus knew their motives were off, but he draws them in anyway because of his compassion on them. Mark tells us, that Jesus had compassion on the crowd because he saw them as sheep having no shepherd in Mark six thirty four, He healed them and he taught them. He spends the whole day doing this with the crowd. His heart of love is on full display in these verses. This was his compassion on us when we were lost. In Romans 5, 8, it says "But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus had come to do the will of the Father, John 5.30 tells us. This was his main goal. Love for the Father will always result in love for people. And Jesus displayed this. Serving the Father will always result in serving others. And this is the example that Jesus set for his disciples in this moment, that his heart is for the people. Mark 10.44-45 through 45 says, And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. This is the attitude that Jesus wants his disciples to have. So instead of sending the crowd away, like they suggest, the, the disciples suggest in the other Gospels, he asks Philip where they could get food to feed the crowd. In verses 5 and 6 it says, Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. So here's a massive crowd. They've been with Jesus the whole day, Mark 6.35 tells us, and it's getting late. And Jesus wants to feed them, and he knows exactly what he's going to do, and he knows how he's going to accomplish that, but he uses the opportunity to test Philip. John is the only one who gives us this little detail about Jesus engaging Philip. And I think it provides us with credible an incredible insight into how Jesus works in the lives of his followers. Um, Philip would be the natural pick because he's from this area. So naturally, Jesus should go to him if he wanted this information. But we know that Jesus is all-knowing. Um, Jesus knew exactly where they could get food, because he knows everything. So his question is not to get information. Um, in fact, the New Testament, Jesus asked over several hundred questions, and not one of them is because he needs to know the answer. Uh, Jesus asks questions often to reveal a person's heart to them, and also to bring a better understanding about who he is to us. Um, so in verse 6, it tells us that he said this to Philip to test him. But what was that test? Philip had been with Jesus for some time up, up, up until this point. Uh, he had seen Jesus do several miracles. Certainly he had been at the wedding where Jesus turned the water into wine. He would have been there with, when, with Jesus when he healed the man at Bethsaida, uh, Or Bethesda. Um, he had experienced firsthand what Jesus was capable of. But would that knowledge and would those experiences have any impact on the need that he was presented with? It's a test of faith. Um, and in a bit, we look at another interaction that Jesus has with Philip um, in Scripture, and we see that it's a recurring theme in his relationship with Jesus. Philip struggled to allow his experience with Jesus to impact his faith. Um, this test of Philip reveals that God cares that we have a good understanding of his provision in our lives. Um, he wants Philip to have a faith that looks to him, not inward to his own ability. Not only does he provide for our every need, he cares that, he, that we understand that he is providing for our every need. Um, we could do a year's study or more on the providence of God. If you look up scriptures um, that talk about God's provision, they're endless, they're countless, there's so many. Um, our lives are surrounded by the goodness of God and the provision of God. Trudy shared a couple weeks ago that if God never did another thing for us, we are blessed. He has blessed us so much. Um, when testing presents itself, it's vital that we keep in mind the goodness that has followed us in our lives and the goodness of God, that he is good, that he is providing for all of our needs. When you look at the Psalms, they're completely filled with the many ways that God provides for us. Um, Psalm 102 caught my attention. It's There's 40-some verses, and if you have time to sit down and just kind of sit with it and read it, you should. It's amazing. It's filled with so many of the amazing things that God has done for us. He has been. It tells us how he's been faithful. He has saved us from trouble. He hears us when we call to him. He leads us. He satisfies us. He heals us. He calms the storms of our lives. And it just goes on and on, and it's it's really beautiful. In this psalm, the writer says four times, he says, Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. He cares that you and I understand that he is providing for us. Sometimes our needs can so distract us that we forget how blessed we are. And we can only see what's not working in our lives. We can only see the difficulty in front of us. And the cry of the psalmist is that in those moments we would remind ourselves of the goodness of God. At the very end of the psalm, the psalmist tells us who are the ones who are able to do this, who are the ones who are able to see themselves as blessed of the Lord. In 42 and 43, he says, The righteous see it and rejoice. Whoever is wise will observe these things, and they will understand the loving kindness of the Lord. So it's the righteous, those who are trying to see Jesus, those who are walking with God, and the wise. The wise will step back from their difficulty and observe how God has been faithful, how God has been good. We have a responsibility as believers to do this when we go through difficulty. They understand the loving kindness of God. Jesus tested Philip, um, and he said, here is a need. And to Philip, Philip thought, okay, I'm being asked to figure this out. But we know that Jesus was asking Philip to look to him, um, to draw on what he knew of him. <clears throat> Philip had been with Jesus, so there should be no reason for Philip to fail this test. <clears throat> Excuse me. We find ourselves in Philip's position often. We know the Lord has been good to us, but suddenly our circumstances leave us feeling without, leave us feeling inadequate or unprovided for. And yet the scriptures have told us, in psalm, in psalm 23, he tells us, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The psalm tells us that um, uh, the Lord provides for those who walk uprightly. But how do we marry those truths with the feelings that we have um, that make us feel inadequate or unprovided for? Um, those feelings that sometimes take the front seat when we feel um, that God doesn't see us. Um, And if we're not careful, those feelings will pull us down and make us completely able, unable to see how God is providing for us. Um, We need to bring every thought into captivity because that's the enemy. Those thoughts and those feelings are not coming from the Lord. Second Corinthians ten three through five says, "For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God. For pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. So those thoughts of God's not providing for me, God doesn't see me. Those things are the things that He's talking talking about arguments." that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. Those are the thoughts that we need to bring into captivity and to the the obedience of Christ. See, while Jesus is going to great lengths in our lives to show us that he is good, that he has provided for all of our needs, there's an enemy who is working overtime to get us to believe that we have been forgotten, that God doesn't see me, that my needs are being ignored. He did this with Eve in the garden. He got her to question the goodness of God He said, God knows that when you eat this fruit, you will be like him, causing her to believe that God was keeping something good from her and that by acting on her own, she could get what she was due. And boy, did she. He wants to take every good thing that God does in our life and every good thing that God has done for us and make us forget it in view of what we do not have. When we come into hardship, he wants that to be the only thing that we see. Jesus knew what he was going to do with Philip. He knew what he was going to do with this need. And in testing, he knows what he is doing in our lives. He sees our need, and he has a plan, and he's working on our behalf, even when we cannot see it, even when we don't understand it. Every need that we have and every difficult circumstance that we face is an opportunity for us to trust the Lord. But we need to be aware that the enemy is seeking to muddy the waters with lies. Um, Over and over again in scripture, we see Jesus test the faith of those that he loves. We think about the children of Israel and the oppression that God saved them from and the incredible miracles that he performed on their behalf in the land of Egypt and in the desert. Yet when he tests them in the wilderness, they refused to obey him and they refused to surrender to him and they complained about everything they didn't have. And they said in Numbers 14, they say it would have been better if we would have died in the land of Egypt, failing to remember the goodness of God and equating what they didn't have with a lack of care and a lack of love on God's part. A commentator said, God's love is not pampering, it is perfecting. God could not bless the children of Israel because they refused to obey him, and they refused to believe him for who he had revealed himself to be. Hebrews 3, 16 through 19 says, For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt, led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not those who sinned? whose corpses fell in the wilderness. And to whom did he swear they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see they could not enter in because of unbelief. And we can fall into this trap. Um, you know, sometimes we equate... Um, God's lack of actions, what we see as God's lack of actions, are testing in our lives. It seems to contradict his love for us. God, don't you love me? God, don't you see? Um, but we need to speak truth to our hearts the way David does in the Psalms. He says in Psalm 103, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. And we need to remind ourselves that God has a plan and that he is working on our behalf and that his ways are not our ways, as Isaiah 58, 55, verse 8 tells us. And he is perfecting us when he brings us into testing. Isaiah 64, verse 4 says, For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has the eye seen any God besides you who acts for the one who waits for him. When we look at Philip in scripture, there are only a handful of things that we learn about him, but they add insight as to why Jesus is testing his faith, as we've talked about. Jesus went out of his way to find Philip. In fact, um, Philip is the only one that uh, it is said of that Jesus went and found him in John 143, which is so cool because I think as Philip went through this testing, he could probably think back to that, okay, God came and found me. He loves me. He's not against me. Um, We learn that he struggled in his faith, though. Um, He asked Jesus for proof. Later on, we're going to see in John chapter 14, Jesus is telling them that they've seen the Father. And he says, and from now on, you know him and have seen him. And Phillips turns to Jesus and he says, Lord, show us the Father, and it's sufficient. And Jesus says to him, have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say show us the father Philip. He rebukes Philip strongly, and he says, I've been with you all this time. Have you not not seen me? Do you not know me? So we can look at this and think, why is Jesus picking on Philip in this passage passage in chapter 6, right? But it's clear that Jesus loved Philip. He went and he found him, and where he was weak, Jesus knew where he was weak, And so he tested him in that area so as to make his faith stronger. He was seeking to mature him. Jesus would be leaving the disciples, and the disciples would be doing the work of Jesus. Their faith needed to be strong. They needed to know who Jesus was so that they could do that work effectively. He says this to us through testing as well. You've been with me all this time. Will you trust me? Will you see that only I am sufficient for all your needs? Jesus wants Philip to take what he knows of him, And turn to him in the face of need, in the face of difficulty, in the face of not understanding. So in verse 7, we see Philip do some quick math. And he asserts that there's a real supply and demand problem. He says, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. Now, 100 denarii was about what you would make in one day. So 200 denarii would take around eight months uh, to earn. So even what might be something that could be humanly possible would not come close to meeting the need that they have. Um, Philip has part of the answer right. He recognizes that he is not sufficient for the problem, that even an imaginary solution wouldn't provide enough food for the crowd. But he's missing another part. A bigger part, the more important part, that Jesus is standing right in front of him. He saw Jesus turn the water to wine. He's seen Jesus heal people with a spoken word. He just needed to say, I don't know, but you know. And it sounds so easy, but it's so hard to do that. Um, You know, instead we strive and we lose hope uh, trying to figure things out on our own. And Jesus was testing Philip to see if he would look to him. Our own physical resources will always fall short in comparison to the spiritual resources that we have when we look to the Lord. Zechariah 4.6 says, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. His intention is always to bring us a better understanding of who he is and to give us confidence in him so that we will be able to bring what little we have and give it all to him. In verses 8 and 9, it says, One of his disciples, Andrew Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? Andrew is a problem solver. Um, You're either a Philip or you're an Andrew. You either see a problem and you're like, nope, not me, not today. Um, Or you're Andrew and you try and figure it out. So he sees his buddy in a tough spot, um, failing essentially. Uh, And he offers a solution, but also recognizes its insufficiency for the need. Um, But you know what? This is what Jesus is looking for, that mustard seed faith. When we bring our five barley loaves and our two little fish and we say, this is all I have, he can use that. There wasn't much to work with, but God doesn't need much. He didn't need anything at all, actually. He could have said the word and spoken the food into you know, into their hands. But he intentionally chose to bring the disciples into the work. And he held back that miracle until he had the participation of the disciples. And this is what he does in our lives. It's a lesson in faith. It's a lesson in surrender. Lord, this is what I have. You can do something with it. His testing is to give us the faith that we lack. James 1, 2 through 4 says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. When we're presented with hard things, when we don't get the things that we think we need in our lives, it's not because he doesn't care. It's the exact opposite. His love love is perfecting us. He's maturing us where we fall short, He says, bring what little faith you have and watch me work in your life. Not because he wants us to feel defeated or less than. On the contrary, he says that we are more than conquerors through him, Romans 8, 37. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. His desire is for for us to live confidently in his ability, in his provisions. And his provisions are divine. And so we see that the need could only be met by Jesus. In verses 10 through 11, he feeds the crowd and he reveals his power to his disciples. It says, Jesus said, make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down in, about num- in number about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves. And when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples and the disciples to those who sat down. And likewise of the fish as much as they wanted. Notice a couple things here. In order for the disciples to see what Jesus would do, they needed to recognize their own insufficiency, place what little they had in the hands of Jesus, and trust in him. Next, Jesus doesn't seem to be in a hurry. Um, It says that he has them sit down. Mark tells us that he had them sit down in ranks of 50 and 100. Um, He passes it out to his disciples, and the disciples pass it out um, to the crowd. Jesus doesn't seem to be rushed here. And Spurgeon says of this, and I love it, Our blessed master has glorious leisure because he is always punctual. Late people are in a hurry, but he, being never late, never hurries. His time frame is perfect. Third, in order for the crowd to be fed, they needed to fall under the order of Jesus. Jesus has the people sit down in a certain way. He has the disciples pass out the food to them. Um, We need to fall under the order of Jesus in order to be blessed by him. The only way that we can figure out the order of Jesus is to be fed by the word of God, to figure out what he wants us to do. And soon everybody in this scenario would be filled to the full. And the visual is amazing. When we submit to Jesus, when we surrender what little we have, recognizing it's only useful when we place it in his hands, he blesses us. There's going to be times in our lives when we feel completely inadequate. If you're a mom, you totally get this. Um, We start comparing ourselves among ourselves, um, you know, and we see other people as more effective or more efficient than us. But Jesus hasn't called us to anyone else's lives but our own. He is sufficient for the life that he has put us all in individually. The blessings that he has given us, those are the ones that we can handle. The hardships that he has given us, those are the ones that he is sufficient for in our own lives. Um, we can feel inadequate or insufficient in a difficult job, in a difficult marriage, with a challenging child, Um and then we feel inadequate because we feel inadequate and we're pretty sure nobody else feels inadequate, you know, and it just kind of, you know, goes down this spiral. And you know what? It's a tactic of the enemy to get our eyes off of the Lord and put them on ourselves. Um, and we fall into it over and over. Our confidence cannot be in ourselves because we will always fall short. He needs to be the object of our confidence. Philippians 3.3 3 says, have no confidence in the flesh. Philippians 4-13 says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Proverbs 3-6 says, in all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. We come, we lay it down. I can't, Lord, but you can. He made you a mom. He will equip you. He put you in college. He will equip you. He's called you to wait for something. He will equip you. He's called us to love people who are difficult to love. And he gives us his love to do it with. We can all fill in that blank with whatever hard thing he has called us all to, and we can write over it, he is more than able. He brought the disciples into this moment. He knew there would be this need, and he had a plan all along. It was never a surprise to him. Before, before anyone ever knew that there would be this need, he had a plan. Second Corinthians 12.9 says, My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. When we abide in the Lord, and He brings us into a situation that we feel inadequate for, we can trust Him, and He has promised that He will never leave us, He will never forsake us, and that He is right there in us, in it with us, not off in the distance somewhere, right there in it with us. Isaiah forty-three verse two says, "When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and." Through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flames scorch you. We see it all throughout scripture. Jesus taking the little bit that people have and making much of it. Taking absolutely nobodies and using them powerfully in his hands. This is what he wants to do in our life. We see Abraham. Look at how long God made Abraham wait for the blessing and the testing that Abraham endured. But the scripture says that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness in Genesis 15, verse 6. We look at Joseph in the whole last 10 chapters of Genesis, what looked like a completely messed up situation that no good could come out of, that went from bad to worse to worse, being sold by his brothers, being thrown into prison for something he didn't do, a situation that Joseph could have easily said, God has forgotten me, God doesn't see but he didn't he chose not to he chose to have a perspective trusting in god believing in god and at the end of it he was able to look at it all and say god meant this all for good god took moses 80 year old moses who felt completely inadequate to be able to speak on behalf of the lord and the lord told him in exodus 4 verse 11 so uh, it says who has made man's mouth or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seen, or the blind, have not I the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be your mouth, and teach you what you shall say. We look at Gideon in Judges chapter 7. God dwindled Gideon's army all the way down to 300 men up against a massive crowd. It would be one man against 400 men when it all came down to it. And God said he did this so that the children of Israel would wouldn't be able to say it was our own hands that saved us, but that they would know who fought for them and who delivered them. When we surrender ourselves, he does great things, not because of how great we are, but because of how great he is. Our righteousness is nothing before him, but in his hands, the little that we bring to the table becomes something useful. When we bring our hearts, our broken hearts, Ezekiel tells us in 36.26, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. We bring our minds, feeble minds, and he gives us the mind of Christ in Philippians 2.5. We bring our lives and he builds us up. First Peter 2 5 tells us you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So we all come in here with needs. And while they all look different, they all have a common denominator, a common denominator that God is sufficient for all of them. And this is why we can encourage each other, even when we aren't experiencing the same things. The provision of God reaches every need in every season. His word meets every need. Isaiah 61, verse 3, tells us that when we bring our ashes, he gives us beauty, the oil of joy for mourning. The garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. So the goal is that we would be called trees of righteousness and that he would be glorified. This is his plan in all of our lives. God isn't going to provide the tangible things that we're asking him to provide all the time. But if we're willing, he's always going to provide spiritual change in our lives. He's always going to provide spiritual blessings in our lives. We're not always going to understand why God allows certain things in our lives or certain testing in our lives or why he's doing things a certain way, but we can be sure that he is working for our good. If there was anyone in Scripture that understood their faith being tested, it was Job. Um, And he didn't understand what God was doing. Um, and I love that that's accounted for us because we can identify with not understanding what God is doing. In Job twenty-three verses eight through ten, it says, "Look, I go forward, but He's not there, and backward, but I cannot perceive Him. When He works on the left hand, I cannot behold Him. When He turns to the right hand, I cannot see Him. But He knows the way that I take, and when He has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. In His hands are loaves and our small fish. It's translated sardines, actually." become gold. In verse 11, it says that Jesus gives thanks. Um, Jesus gives thanks before the miracle even happens because he knew the increase that would take place. And this is also the confidence that we can have as we walk with God. We can thank him in times of need, in times of difficulty, because we know that his plan is for good. In Romans 8.28, it says, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. It says he gave them as much as they wanted. In that passage, as they sat there with their bread and their fish, he gave them as much as they wanted. The resources of Jesus will never run dry. Romans 11.33 says, Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Jeremiah 33.3 three says, Call to me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. Are we tapping into the riches that are found in Jesus, in his word? See, had Philip been able to, in that moment when Jesus tested him and said, How can we feed these people? If he would have been able to reflect on the experiences that he had been having with Jesus and thought about who Jesus was, he would have been able to say, You got this. Right? Right? In order for the disciples to give the food to the crowd, notice they had to get it from the hand of Jesus. We can't get, we can't give out to others what we have not received from Jesus. His word is essential for surviving this life. If we're, if we are to be of any use in the hands of Jesus, we need to be feeding on His word every day. Proverbs 28:5 says, "Those who seek the Lord understand all." Psalm 119 says. Uh, Psalm 119 165 says, Great peace have those who love your law, and nothing causes them to stumble. 119 105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path, and the Psalms are filled with the wisdom of that comes from the Word of God that we can draw from. And so in verse 12 it says that the remainder of was greater than what they even started with. It says they were filled in verse 12. He says to his disciples, gather up the fragments the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Therefore, they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. When we're fed by the hand of Jesus, we get true feeling and he wastes nothing. It doesn't say what the leftovers get used for. But it says that nothing was lost. So even if it was just to further blow the mind of the disciples and the crowd, it got used. Um, Every small detail of our lives, he is using. He wastes nothing. Every victory, every hardship, every failure, every sigh, every tear, every last part, he is using to pull us deeper into a more mature walk of faith. When we put what little bit of faith we have, when we bring ourselves to the cross, And we say, this is me, here I am. He makes our cup overflow. Ephesians 3.20 says, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory. This incredible miracle done by Jesus impressed the crowd. Yet they failed to fully see who Jesus is. In verse 14, it says, Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Now, given John's commentary from verse 2, we know that they're following Jesus not out of true faith, but because of what he could do for them. Um, The prophet they're making reference to is from Deuteronomy 18.15, when Moses prophesied that a prophet would be risen up um, who would come after him. He says, um, in Deuteronomy 18.15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, fra- from your brethren, him you shall hear. A prophet like Moses, he would be the Messiah, God's son, the savior of the world. But they are thinking a prophet like Moses who provided the b- bread in the wilderness, but we know that came from God. But they're drawing a parallel because of what Jesus had done with the bread and the fish. Jesus had given the people all the evidence that they needed to recognize him and confess him as the son of God, yet they didn't see it because they were more impressed with having their physical needs met than having their spiritual needs met. And this is what should distinguish us from the world. Jesus has given us every evidence that that he is the son of God. He has given us everything we need to know that he loves us. He pursued us all the way that he did, Philip. He came and he found us and pulled us out of the darkness and pulled us into his light. He has shown us time and again that he is sufficient for all of our needs. He desires for us to have a mature enough faith that when we come into testing, we can say, I can't do it. But there's nothing impossible with you. The following of the crowd was not out of love for Jesus, but He loved them anyway, and He fed them so as to draw them to, to, to desire a life in Him. And we're going to see Him confront their lack of faith later down the road because His priority is feeding our faith, not just our faces. In Psalm 81, verse 14, it says, The haters of the Lord would pretend submission to him, but their fate would endure forever. He would have fed them also with the finest of wheat, and with honey from the rock I would have satisfied you. There was not a genuine submission to Jesus. They failed to see him for who he had revealed himself to be. If we think about what Jesus was trying to accomplish by testing Philip— We see that it was largely, did Philip know who Jesus was and did that knowledge have any bearing on what he believed Jesus could do in his circumstance? Psalm 910 tells us, those who know your name will put their trust in you. Knowing Jesus should change the way that we see our circumstances. It should change our hearts to fully, more fully trust him. We need to invest ourselves in the word of God so that we can know who he is and that what we say about Jesus would be more than just assertions, more than just what we confess, but that it would convict our hearts to trust him in those difficult times, in those testings that he pulls us into. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Romans 10, 17 tells us Jesus cares deeply about who we say he is but he cares more about how that information changes our hearts. In Matthew, just after the feeding of the 5,000, actually, directly after this, in Matthew, in um, chapter 14, verse 18, Jesus is sitting with his disciples, and he says, Who do the crowds say that I am? So they answered and said, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah, and others say that one of the old prophets has risen again. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Jesus, I'm sorry, Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. Jesus is concerned with individuals. This is why he deals directly with Philip, because when it all comes down to it, the only thing that will matter is who we confess Jesus to be and how we let that change, how we lived our lives, how we dealt with difficulty. Romans 10, 9 through 10 says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. We need to be aware that the enemy wants us to doubt the goodness of God when we come into testing. We need to examine all of those feelings that we have and sift them through the scripture and speak the truth to ourselves and to our hearts the way David did. John 8, 31-32 tells us, Then Jesus said to the Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word... And you are my disciples, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. So Jesus asks us tonight, do you know me? And if so, will you bring your fish and bring your loaves and watch me do exceedingly abundantly above all that you could ask or think? Let's pray. Lord, Father, we're so grateful that you have a plan in our lives and that when you pull us into testing, that you have a plan And even though we can't see the end, you can, Lord, and you love us, and we can always go back to the fact that you came and you found us, Lord. And we just want to bring our lives to you, God, and we don't know all the time what you are doing, but, Lord, you are good. I pray that you would teach us, Father how to have that knowledge of knowing you and let that change who we are on the inside. Help us to more fully trust you, Father, so that when we come into testing, we would be able to say, I don't know, but we know that nothing is impossible with you, Lord, and that we can walk with you in a more mature faith. We thank you, Father, for your word and how it changes us and pulls us close to you, and it transforms us and it comforts us. We love you, God, and we thank you for your love toward us. In Jesus' name, amen.